Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. In the last two episodes of Robin Hood, I told you how Stephen Mnuchin attended Yale University, where he joined the Secretive Skull and Bone Society. How he followed in his father's footsteps to become a partner at Goldman Sachs, which he left in 2002 with $60 million in cash and shares. And following the 2008 financial crisis, how he bought a bank, turned it into a foreclosure machine and made billions of dollars by forcing ordinary Americans out of their homes. His profiteering from the pain of others would stand him in good stead in his future role as Donald Trump's footstool, enabling him to enact policies to support the wealthy at the cost of regular Joe. Whether it is tax cuts for the rich or bailouts for big business during the pandemic, Mnuchin's greed and duplicity will define his role in government as much as it has done in business. But I'll be covering this in the next episode. Before we look at his time as Treasury Secretary, there are some other things we need to work through, as Mnuchin's career is littered with lawsuits, scandal and general shitty behaviour. The Mnuchin rabbit hole is a vast network of shell companies, tax havens and personal relationships. A rabbit hole lined with lawyers and accountants which have enabled Steve to play the system for significant financial gain while minimising legal repercussions. So it is ironic that Mnuchin is now Treasury Secretary, a role which requires the collection of taxes, enforcement of tax and financial laws, and the prosecution of alleged tax evaders and financial criminals, because Steve Mnuchin has spent his career doing the exact opposite. I have spent the last two months researching everything I can find out about him. I have read numerous books, scoured the internet, and watched countless hours of Senate hearings, piecing together how he stumbled through life, making himself rich at the expense of others. And two things have become abundantly clear. One, obtaining a clear and transparent explanation of all his roles, positions and dealings is close to impossible. And two, he is a massive dick. From Bedford, UK, I am Peter McCormack and this is Defiance. I, Stephen Mnuchin, do solemnly swear that I shall support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. It is my great honor tonight to present our new Treasury Secretary of the United States, Stephen Mnuchin. Mr. Mnuchin is the ultimate Wall Street insider. From the moment he graduated from college until today, he has worked at a big bank or a hedge fund. If Wall Street threatens to blow up the economy again, does anyone seriously expect Mr. Mnuchin to get tough with his old buddies and tell him to knock it off? You might say that he did not personally authorize One West or IndyMac to cheat me out of my home. 
but his fortune rose as a direct result of managing a company that routinely engaged in irresponsible behavior. Advocates for low-income communities described One West Bank under Mnuchin as a foreclosure machine. Secretary Mnuchin, with working families struggling to make ends meet, why is this administration giving the ultra-wealthy this massive tax cut? There are a lot of slippery interests that make a lot of money off of this rather creepy shell corporation, international crookedness, kleptocracy economy. Steven Mnuchin. 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 When Steve Mnuchin became Treasury Secretary, he was required to comply with government ethics and remove any potential conflicts of interest, thus divesting himself from his financial interests in 43 companies, hedge funds and investment funds, as well as resigning from the various board positions he held. He did, though, retain his unpaid position as president of one of his oldest companies, Stephen T. Mnuchin, Inc., set up in 1999 when he was still working at Goldman Sachs just months before Goldman Sachs went public, netting him as a partner at the time $46 million in stock. The company was set up in Delaware, a state with more corporate entities, public and private, than the 1 million people who live there, where companies hope to minimise taxes and skirt regulations. Little is known about Stephen T. Mnuchin, Inc., The New York Times reported that the only clue as to its operations is a description on corporate filings calling the entity an investment in partnerships. While it's not clear what the company does, what it holds, and whether it is still active or not, Barney Keller, a representative for Mr Mnuchin, said the company held small legacy Goldman Sachs investments and hasn't made any new investments since 2002. So why the secrecy? As we will cover in this episode, Steven Mnuchin is not a man to be trusted. In 2006, Mnuchin established June Entertainment. It was funded mostly by June Capital Management, the hedge fund he set up in 2004 with the help of billionaire George Soros. June Entertainment allowed Mnuchin to pursue his goal of expanding his creative side and rubbing shoulders with Hollywood's elite. Studios would look to companies like June to offset the cost and risk of filmmaking, and it wasn't uncommon for venture capital, hedge funds and even banks to invest in films. Merrill Lynch had invested $500 million into Hollywood between 2007 and 2011, and even the Royal Bank of Scotland spent $350 million between 2007 and 2008. So why are these investors interested in Hollywood? Outside of red carpet premieres, fancy celebrity parties and front row tickets for the Lakers, the government was providing incentives with tax breaks. Established as part of the Jobs Creation Act of 2004 to reduce the flow of productions to foreign companies, provision IRC 181 allowed qualifying productions to immediately write off 
up to $15 million for tax purposes and write off 100% of the cost of certain audiovisual works. The provision was due to expire at the end of 2009, but was extended by President Obama until December 31st 2016, where Congress did not renew the act again. But this was not the end of it. In 2018, Mnuchin pushed through the Bipartisan Budget Reconciliation Act, which resurrected Section 181 for 2017. And on December 20th, 2019, President Trump signed into law the Tax Extender and Disaster Relief Act of 2019, which included an extension of the IRC Section 181 through to December 31st, 2020, also allowing for retroactive claims against 2018. Mnuchin was not expected to benefit from the provision anymore, as he had divested his movie interests when becoming Treasury Secretary. But he still lobbied for it personally. But it is worth noting, back in 2017, June Entertainment LP filed a Certificate of Cancellation with the California Secretary of State. But the production company, June Entertainment, was still very much a going concern and Mnuchin's girlfriend, Louise Linton, was named as its CEO. I'll be coming back to this later. June Entertainment was a collection of funds investing hundreds of millions of dollars into the movie industry. June Entertainment One, established in 2005, invested $325 million into co-funded Fox films. June Entertainment Two, in 2006, invested another $325 million in another 16 films. And June Entertainment Three invested a further $500 million between 2007 and 2010. While these investments had some significant box office hits, such as Avatar and The Devil Wears Prada, they also included crimes against cinema, such as Get Hard and Batman vs Superman. Hey, back off! You better get those tits out of my face, or I'll show you my tits. Oh shit! Damn, this is sick. You gotta be crazy to think it is. In 2012, Brett Ratner, who directed the Rush Hour films and X-Men The Last Stand, joined forces with Australian billionaire James Packer, son of media mogul Kerry Packer, and created Rat Pack Films. And in September 2013, Rat Pack merged with Mnuchin's June Entertainment to create Rat Pack June, and signed a four-year, 75-motion picture co-financing arrangement with Warner Brothers worth $450 million. But in November 2017, six women, including Olivia Munn and Natasha Hendridge, accused Ratner of sexual assault and harassment, and one former talent agency employee accused him of rape, this causing Warner Brothers to sever all ties with the director. Natasha Hendridge said at 19 she was forced to perform oral sex on him, saying, he physically forced himself on me, and at some point I gave in and he did his thing. And Olivia Munn said that while visiting the set of the 2004 Ratner directed After the Sunset, he masturbated in front of her in his trailer when she went to deliver a meal to him. Ratner, like Harvey Weinstein, vehemently disputed the allegations against him. Please note, the LA Times reported extensively on the allegations against Ratner. This article is included in the show notes if you'd like to read more about what a dirty bastard he is. 
Despite the extensive allegations, Ratner is still working with Hollywood's elite and is credited as a producer in the 2019 film Georgetown featuring Academy Award winners Christopher Waltz and Vanessa Redgrave. Ratner is also in the running for the 2020 Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Board of Governors election. Ratner, who once told Variety magazine that Robert Evans, the former production chief at Paramount Pictures, who was later convicted of trafficking cocaine, director James Toback, who has been accused of sexual misconduct by more than 300 women, and celebrated Hollywood paedophile Roman Polanski, who was once convicted of having unlawful sex with a minor in 1977, were amongst his closest friends. Anyway, moving on from Hollywood sexual predators, Mnuchin was making good money out of the industry. And as I explained earlier, June Entertainment 1, 2 and 3 were funds that only invested in films. These were usually co-funding agreements along with a studio, initially with 20th Century Fox Films. Then with Rack Pack June, they negotiated a co-financing deal with Warner Brothers following a collapse in negotiations with 20th Century Fox. June became the lead financier for Warner, replacing Legendary Pictures. This relationship bore a number of hits such as The Lego Movie and American Sniper, as well as flops such as Black Mass and In the Heart of the Sea. And lastly, we have Relativity Media, a full-scale film studio which specialised in acquiring, developing, producing and distributing films. In July 2015, Relativity Media filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York. In April of that year, CEO Ryan Kavanagh had said that he wanted to take the company public despite hemorrhaging cash. But there was no IPO. Relativity Media ended 2014 with $1.18 billion in liabilities after generating just $501 million in revenue. After emerging from bankruptcy in March 2016, Kavanagh failed to revive the company and they filed for bankruptcy again in 2018. Bankruptcy, where all your debts are wiped out. You know, those bills you owe other companies but you can't pay because of the incompetent way in which you run your business. Or twice in the case of Relativity Media. So, why am I telling you about Relativity Media? Well, guess who was on the board in the seven months leading up to its 2015 bankruptcy? Yep, you guessed it, Stephen Mnuchin. And at the same time he was kicking families out of their homes with One West, he also served as co-chairman of Relativity Media, where court charges were put against him for fraud. RKA Film Financing alleged in February 2015 that Mnuchin and 11 others at Relativity, including CEO Ryan Kavanagh, duped RKA into lending $81 million to help finance four films but secretly knew that the cash would be used to prop up the studio's operations before it filed for bankruptcy protection in July of that year. Mnuchin and Kavanagh were sued under fraud charges as RKA claimed they knew the company was in financial trouble yet misled the financiers into thinking all was financially well. RKA also claims that Mnuchin siphoned off $50 million of Relativity's money to pay back his bank One West, who committed around $160 million to Relativity. 
which eventually led to him joining the board as co-chairman. The lawsuit alleges that the money began flowing back to the bank on May the 30th, just one day after he resigned from Relativity's board. Relativity Media had defaulted on its loan to OneWest and Mnuchin began seizing money from Relativity's account. The lawsuit stating that, to be sure, Mnuchin's resignation from Relativity's board a single day before the misappropriation was intended to make the sweeps look legitimate and that OneWest did not lose money when Relativity declared bankruptcy while other creditors lost hundreds of millions of dollars. The money from RKA Film Financing was to release and promote four films, but only 1.7 million went towards this. The rest of the money went to overheads, including the repayment of the OneWest loan. But the New York Supreme Court dismissed the allegation, stating that the allegation that the board of directors of Relativity Media, LLC, was involved in the company's day-to-day operation and financial transactions is insufficient to raise an inference that Mnuchin, by virtue of his position on the board, personally participated in or had knowledge of the other defendants' alleged fraud. He did threaten to sue them back, though. Mnuchin's lawyer previously wrote to the judge to say that he would seek sanctions against RKA Film Financing if the firm continued to make baseless claims against him. Mr Mnuchin intends to follow through on that warning, said Mnuchin's spokesman Barney Keller. As is tradition, when Mnuchin made Treasury Secretary in 2017, he divested from his companies. Although, as most of these financial dealings are with private companies, it is hard to get records of what was sold to whom and for how much. In his testimony before the House Financial Services Committee, he said, I can assure you that it's not a Russian oligarch or any Russian, as Mnuchin faced questions over reports that Ukrainian-born billionaire Len Blavatnik purchased a stake in Rat Pack June Entertainment in 2017 after he'd become Treasury Secretary. Such a transaction would be a conflict of interest for Mnuchin, as Blavatnik is a business associate of Russian billionaire Oleg Deripaska, himself a target of US sanctions which take aim at Putin's close associates. These questions came after Mnuchin lifted sanctions on Oleg's aluminium giant Rusal and other companies linked to the oligarch. The New York Times reports that Tony Sayeg the Treasury Department's Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs said Mnuchin had no business relationship with Blavatnik, though they knew each other socially, and that any implication of a conflict of interest or ethical problem was absurd. He further said that Mnuchin, nor his wife, Louise Linton, were aware of Blavatnik's purchase of the Rat Pack June stake until it was publicly announced. Bullshit! rendering it unnecessary for Mnuchin to seek ethics guidance or to recuse himself on the sanctions issue. Back to June Entertainment, which continued as a going concern after Mnuchin stepped down from it as part of his divestment and passed over to a new CEO, Louise Linton, his fiancée at the time. I'm not aware of any cabinet-level official who sold his interest to his fiancée, said Kathleen Clark, a law professor at Washington University and a leading expert on government and legal ethics who served on the DC Bar Rules of Professional Conduct Review Committee. If they marry, under ethics law, her interests are imputed to him and he would have to recuse himself. And in a January the 10th letter to Rochelle Granat, 
the Treasury Department's Assistant General Counsel and designated agency ethics official, Mnuchin said, Prior to or upon confirmation, I will fully disclose all assets of my fiancé that would have been reportable under Title V of the United States Code Sections 102 if we were married. Until we are married, I will not participate personally and substantially in any blah 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 blah. Ethics aside, Linton's own Hollywood pedigree is comical. In 2012, she started Storm Chaser Films, which made the 2014 classic Serial Datas Anonymous, starring Louise Linton. The film was shown at the Milwaukee Film Festival and the Time Cinema in Milwaukee, but there are no reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I managed to find one review on Patch.com, which reads, I think I just had one of the most unsatisfying movie-going experiences of my life. Storm Chaser didn't make any more films until 2016, a year after Linton got engaged to Mnuchin. Also, shortly after she met Mnuchin, she established Storm Chaser Partners LLC as a funding vehicle for Storm Chaser Films, the production company, setting up Storm Chaser Partners LLC as a Delaware corporation. Hang on a second. Wasn't Steve T. Mnuchin Inc. and June Entertainment Partners also set up in Delaware? So what is it with Delaware? Well, it offers an extreme amount of flexibility and also has created laws and policies that make it incredibly simple for LLCs to incorporate, avoid liability and retain privacy. Anyway, since 2016, Storm Chaser Films has released a number of B-movies, such as Intruder, which grossed $129,000 on a $1 million budget. This should not be confused with the terrible 2019 film The Intruder, featuring Dennis Quaid, as Linton's Intruder is considerably worse. We do, though, get to look forward to Linton's directorial debut this year with Me, You and Madness, which she also stars in and is said to be a campy thriller in which a sociopathic bisexual woman hunts down and kills men with crossbows, martini glasses and kitchen knives in order to eat them. Uh... In 2017, as Mnuchin divested from his companies, it was revealed he was also an investor in Linton's Storm Chaser Partners LLC, though not as successful as his deals with Fox and Warner Brothers. After meeting Louise Linton at a wedding reception in 2013, they were engaged two years later. 18 years his junior, Louise Linton was born Louise Hay in a castle in Scotland and spent much of her teenage years in boarding school. After high school, she went off to Zambia to spend some of her gap year volunteering there before going to study in America, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism from Pepperdine University and earned a degree from the University of West Los Angeles School of Law. But she had always been interested in acting. And when she moved to America, she changed her name to Linton and her first role was in the 2007 film Lions for Lambs, but she didn't make the final cut with all of her scenes rejected. Her next role was starring in the 2008 Yam Loranis film The Echo after her millionaire celebrity lawyer husband Ronald Richards paid the director $200,000 to give her the role. After a number of other small roles, she hit the big time in 2014 when she took the lead role in the previously mentioned Serial Data's Anonymous, 
which was produced by Storm Chaser Films. But it wasn't until 2016, a year after she got engaged to multi-millionaire film funder Steve Mnuchin, that the actress Louise Linton started to get the roles she craved, including a starring role in the Rat Pack-funded film Rules Don't Apply, which grossed $3.9 million on the $25 million budget and also included Steve Mnuchin playing Steve Mnuchin, a Merrill Lynch executive. Although she might have realised that she was more suited to raising funds for films via her new network than actually being on screen, it was her foray into writing that would put her name in the papers. In 2016, Linton published a ghost-written autobiography about her experiences during her gap year as an 18-year-old in Zambia in 1999. Currently listed as unavailable on Amazon, In Congo Shadow was called the defining work of the white saviour in Africa genre. Finally, one narrative that nails every cliche of the genre, including a customary picture of Louise surrounded by African children on the back cover. The book tells how her dream gap year turned into a nightmare when she had to flee armed rebels from the nearby Democratic Republic of the Congo. My gap year had become a living nightmare when I inadvertently found myself caught up in the fringes of the Congolese war. The book contains a passage where armed rebels descended on her village, entering the country from the neighbouring Congo. As monsoon season came and went, the Hutu-Tutsi conflict in neighbouring Congo began to escalate and then spill over into Zambia with repercussions all along the lake. Thousands of people were displaced and we heard brutal tales of rape and murder. She goes on to say, As the night ticked interminably by, I tried not to think what the rebels would do to the skinny white Mzungu with long angel hair if they found me. Clenching my jaw to stop my teeth chattering, I squeezed my eyes shut and reminded myself how I'd come to be a central character in this horror story. Gerard Sakao, who owns one of the two lodges where Linton volunteered during the gap year, pointed out that this was all bullshit. Her description of the country and her description of some of the events that supposedly she experienced were totally inaccurate. There were certainly some border problems at that time in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. There was a strong battle going on in the border region that straddled the DRC border with uh, Zambia. But there was no way that the people from the DRC had any fight with Zambia at all. And the essence of one of the incidents that she used extensively was, in actual fact, there were rebels on the border that were on the opposing side to the Mobutu regime, and they had come under extremely dangerous situations and they decided they took two or three boats, loaded them with people and crossed through into Zambian waters. But 
They were never a threat. They didn't come to attack Zambia in any way. They made it very, very clear. I was in, at that time, in radio comms with the um, captain of one of the ships and was able to speak with him. And he said, please, please, please tell the Zambian authorities that we are, all we are doing are fleeing the DRC. And the closest way that, or the easiest way for us to do this was to get into Zambia. What Louise described it and the way that she described it in her book, it was really offensive. I was there, I was in the area and never had the Congolese posed any serious threat to us. Perhaps because she was a young girl and she saw soldiers, um, she may well have seen a couple of soldiers, but they did not attack Kasaba Bay. They did not attack Indoli Bay, our lodge. Nothing like that ever, ever happened. She also wrote about the dense jungle canopy above me. But Zambia has savanna grassland, not dense jungle. We do not ever have monsoons in Zambia or in that area of the DRC. And uh, the jungle canopy, it's mostly savanna uh, scrubland in that area. And she would never, ever have set foot in any jungle area. She also talked about looking after orphans with HIV. Her job there as a GAP student was basically to look after uh, the interests of the guests who may come into Cassaba Bay. That was the only job that she had to do there. She may have come in contact with some HIV carriers because HIV was very, very prevalent in the whole of Zambia in actual fact. But again, it wasn't an issue that was specific to the area that she was exposed to. And she was never, ever given responsibility for taking care of HIV-infected patients. It was her overall tone and the overall feeling that she had come there as a saviour. She, uh, um, in somewhere in the book, she intimated that Zambians were very, very delighted to have her there because they recognised that they had come there to help save them from what? Who knows? The thing became quite a big move on social media. The Zambian people were utterly, utterly disgusted with her. The Zambian people are generally renowned in the region for being very easygoing and very friendly. While she made some reference towards this, effectively, it, it, it wasn't that they were friendly to her, it was that she herself was friendly to them. 
She was disparaging. That was the whole thing. She treated them as, well, aren't you lucky that I am here? I've come here to save you. And that caused a bit of a furor. Indeed it did. Offended Zambians took to social media and hashtag Linton Lies started trending on Twitter, with one person commenting, Zambia, in 1999, according to hashtag Linton Lies, monsoons, civil war, rebels, jungles... I've been in the wrong Zambia all my life. And another saying, the only thing missing from the At Louise Linton story is Tarzan and Mowgli. The Zambian High Commission in London, along with a huge amount of public outcry, saw London's Telegraph newspaper that published an extract of the book, apologise and the book being pulped. But it isn't just her book that has drawn the wrong kind of publicity for Louise. An Instagram post in 2017 which saw her tagging various luxury fashion brands she was wearing while stepping off a private government jet did not go down well with the public. In a now-deleted post, she said, Great hashtag day trip to hashtag Kentucky, hashtag nicest, hashtag people, hashtag beautiful, hashtag countryside, hashtag Roland Murray pants, hashtag Tom Ford sunnies, hashtag Hermes scarf, hashtag Valentino rock stud heels, hashtag Valentino, hashtag USA. Linton was a force to apologise for belittling Jenny Miller, a mother of three who replied, Glad we could pay for your little getaway. Hashtag deplorable. To which Linton replied, Oh, did you think this was a personal trip? Adorable. Do you think the US government paid for our honeymoon or personal travel? La la la. Have you given more money to the economy than me and my husband? Either as an individual earner in taxes or in self-sacrifice to your country? I'm pretty sure we paid more taxes towards our day trip than you did. Now... Are we really going to get into the amount of taxes paid here? Because for balance, we'll have to look at the shell companies, bankruptcies, lawsuits, tax havens, tax avoidance and government sweeteners used to force ordinary people out of their homes. Louise, you and your husband are a net drain. And your husband paying taxes on gains from illegally forcing people out of their homes does not count. And also, they are his taxes. They're not yours. The irony was that Linton also accused Mrs Miller of being adorably out of touch. No, Louise. No. Mnuchin had requested the use of a government jet to take him and Linton on their honeymoon in Scotland, France and Italy. This would be at a cost of $25,000 an hour and the Air Force wisely declined its request this time. You don't need a giant rule book of government requirements to just say to yourself, this is common sense. It's wrong, Senator Ron Wyden told ABC. That's just slap your forehead stuff. They actually got married while he was Treasury Secretary. They they were were in a relationship prior to that. But one one thing that we've seen is uh, their capacity to live this kind of high-flying lifestyle and, and in some cases, uh, it seems, on taxpayer dime. He apparently commissioned a military jet for his honeymoon. And he, he at, after the fact, claimed that, well, you know, he needed to be on call. And this was very important for him to be able to uh, have, have access to 
uh, secure phones and things like that while on the, uh, uh, his honeymoon. Uh, that didn't seem to really uh, strike anyone as a plausible explanation. There was another one where he uh, appeared to schedule a trip to Fort Knox, which is where you know all the gold is held in the United States, seemingly at the same time of that major eclipse where, uh, and he brought his wife along with him on that. So it seemed like he was using a, a taxpayer funded trip so he could see the eclipse. That is the time which we have these iconic photographs of Mnuchin and Louise Linton with uh, strips of dollars. Uh, the U.S. Mint, uh, a U.S. Mint facility uh, taking these glamour shots that I think are most reminiscent of Mnuchin as a Bond villain. I mean, this is him with a smirk on his face and his wife holding this strip of money, sort of half smiling. It's, it's one of the stranger photos that you'll ever see. And I think it has defined Mnuchin in many ways in the eyes of the public. A Treasury Department official later said that the Mnuchins reimbursed the government for the 2017 private trip that was reportedly used to provide the Mnuchin couple with a bird's-eye view of the solar eclipse, and that Mrs Linton was not compensated by any of the labels she promoted with hashtags. With the use of government jets, multimillionaire Mnuchin doesn't need his private jet anymore. The US Treasury Secretary signed up with JetCard Plus in 2017 Virus company, Stephen T. Mnuchin Inc., using the membership to pre-purchase time on private jets. But last year in May 2019, he successfully sued them for $220,000 to reimburse prepaid hours with the private jet company. From shutting down inquiries into One West subsidiary Financial Freedom to the Trump administration's decision to exclude some children from federal stimulus checks because one or both of their parents are immigrants, Mnuchin is no stranger to lawsuits. And last year, he was named in a lawsuit bought by Sears for an alleged multi-billion dollar theft. For this, we need to go back to Eddie Lampert, Mnuchin's best buddy, who he joined at ESL Investments after leaving Goldman Sachs, and who he ruined with in Yale, and who is also in the secret Skull and Bone Society we mentioned in episode one. You know, the club of ultra-wealthy political and business leaders who wield terrifying amounts of financial and political influence, including Steve Schwartzman, who runs Blackstone, who we talked about in episode two. The lawsuit stated that, had defendants not taken these improper and illegal actions, Sears would have had billions of dollars to pay its third-party creditors today and would not have endured the amount of disruption, expense and job losses resulting from its recent bankruptcy filing. Under the guidance of Lampert and Mnuchin, the Sears board sucked billions of dollars of value out of the company over a five-year period via a stock buyback scheme, loading the company with debt and forcing 3,600 stores to close, leading to 250,000 workers being made redundant. From 2005, over $6 billion was spent buying back its shares to support its stock price, which collapsed from a high of $143.91 in 2007 to less than a dollar a share a couple of weeks before the bankruptcy filing. If they had put $6 billion into upgrading stores and website development, they could be in a very different position right now, said William Lazanik, a retired University of Massachusetts economics professor and an expert in share repurchases. They could be in a much better position to compete in the changing world of retail. 
Lamper even sold Sears' own real estate to himself before then leasing it back to the company. Eddie Lampert is is kind of this fascinating character. He was seen as this sort of boy wonder on Wall Street uh, after he got out of Yale and 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 his his roommate situation with Steve Mnuchin. Uh, he was seen as uh, in some circles sort of the next Warren Buffett, and he he founded a hedge fund that made a, a number of acquisitions. And the biggest move that that Lampert made that will define him was. In, in the early 2000s when he bought Sears. Among the people that he brought in was Steve Mnuchin, uh, who was on the Sears board for a number of years. Now, what Lampert did at Sears has run the company to ruin. I installed managers who were supposed to, he basically pit managers and divisions against one another uh, in a bid to try to increase productivity, this this completely failed. He sunk a lot of debt onto the company, which made it unable to maneuver. Uh, when changes in the retail landscape, like e-commerce, uh, manifested themselves, uh, he started selling off the various parts of the Sears empire. What's interesting about Sears is that it really was the earliest version of a sort of e-commerce kind of environment. Uh, the Sears and Roebuck catalog was something that would go out to people across America and they would uh, be able to buy at home and have it delivered to their house. Sounds a lot like Amazon, right? So Sears was a, an early, early adopter. We're talking way back at the beginning of the 20th century of this model, and yet it was unable to adapt to uh, the internet in any meaningful way. And that's because Lampert was so focused on, first of all, putting debt on the company, not investing in the company, uh, not investing in the stores, and pitting managers against one another that he, he just completely mismanaged the operation. So when it came time for a reckoning at Sears, he really strip-mined the entire operation. He sold off the, the various brands that Sears had uh, into, in some cases, into companies that he had a, a, a minority or majority ownership stake in. Uh, so he's selling them to himself. He was the top lender to Sears and thus first in line in the bankruptcy. So he was stiffing suppliers and everything, but, but making back his profit on interest. Uh, the most famous thing he did was he split the, the Sears business from the real estate, the underlying real estate, much of which was owned by Sears, and he split them into two companies, both of which he was the, the controlling interest in, and he had Sears pay rent to this other entity called Seritage, which he had a controlling stake in. And he also, when Sears would make the decision to pull out of a various property, that real estate was then able to be redeveloped by this second entity called Seritage. So he would make decisions about Sears that were advantageous to Seritage. All these Sears buildings are in very desirable locations around the country in downtowns that could be redeveloped into housing or commercial properties. And Seritage uh, would benefit greatly from that. So. This was sort of how to loot a company. 
And as a member of the board, Mnuchin certainly had a, a window into this. Whatever the situation, Mnuchin always seems to land on his feet. Back in 2005, when Mnuchin's mother died, he inherited her portfolio. Mnuchin's mother had been a long-time investor with Bernie Madoff, who created the largest Ponzi scheme in American history. But after her death, Mnuchin and his brother sold her investments, making $3.2 million. Instead of trading stocks with his client's money, Bernie Madoff had for years been operating an enormous Ponzi scheme, paying off old investors with money he got him from new ones. When the economy went into freefall at the end of 2008, Madoff could no longer attract new money and the scheme collapsed. Hundreds of investors, including numerous charities, were wiped out. Harry Markopoulos, a financial analyst, reached out to the SEC many times from the late 90s to warn them of Madoff's scheme, with evidence that it was fraudulent and the numbers didn't add up, but nothing was done. The Madoff scandal left a long trail of wreckage that included suicides, lost homes and bankruptcies. Madoff was sent to 150 years in prison and sadly his two sons, who revealed the scheme, both died. One committing suicide two years after his father's arrest and the other to cancer in 2014. The Madoff trustee, Irvin Pickard, sued to retrieve the money from the Mnuchins as he did from other Ponzi scheme winners saying that they were fake gains. A court ruled that Picard could only claw back money from those who had cashed out in the two years before the collapse, and the Mnuchins, having pulled out roughly three years before, got to keep their made-off money. Martin Luther King famously said he longed for a day when you judge a man by the content of his character. And in these first three shows, I have outlined the content of Mnuchin's character. The company he keeps, his greed, his duplicitous dealings, and how he profits from the pain of others. It is the content of one's character which should define whether they should hold high office, whether they will truly represent the best interests of the American people over their Wall Street buddies and Washington power players. There is nothing in Stephen Mnuchin's history that demonstrated that he would be a good candidate for Treasury Secretary. In fact, his history demonstrates the exact opposite. Yet so corrupted is government by Wall Street, he was the ideal candidate to use the government to exploit the American people. A real-life Robin Hood, stealing from the poor to give to the rich, now with the blessing of the president. I have no doubt that he represents everything the forefathers were trying to prevent when building a nation. Next week, in the final episode of Robin Hood, I will tell you how Steve Mnuchin took the leap into government, how he stayed loyal to Trump, and how his policies continue to benefit the rich at the expense of ordinary Americans. This show was produced by Tom Pattinson and Danny Knowles. Additional thanks to Daniel Johnson for artwork, Karen Chadson for voiceover, as well as guests David Dayan and Jared Zayatkow. Our website is defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films. 
Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest exchange for buying Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple and Google app stores. If you'd like to support our work, please share the show out with your friends and family on social media, subscribe to Defiance on your favorite platform, and leave us a review on iTunes. My name is Peter McCormack. You can check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, at whatbitcoindid.com, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Defiance.